Hello and welcome to the weekend edition of The Bunker. I'm your host, Justin Quirk. There isn't a business sector on earth that hasn't been hit hard by the pandemic. And Britain's £26 billion fashion industry, the UK's largest creative sector, has experienced its own body blows. Lockdown shattered high street retail. Topshop, Debenhams and Dorothy Perkins have all gone. And recently Gap made the astonishing announcement that it will close all 81 of its UK stores. Fast fashion, those wear-once and throw-away items that drove high street sales while contributing 350,000 tonnes of landfill every year, already seem to be part of our pre-COVID past. And those daily emails that used to try and sell you workwear are now full of athleisure, basically upscale pyjamas for the home working. Who needs clothes for display when nobody can see anything but your head and shoulders? It all feels like a turning point for an industry that, according to the British Fashion Council, adds 800,000 jobs to the economy and £6.5 billion in textile and fashion exports alone. What does it all mean? Will the pandemic change what we wear as well as how we buy it? My guest today to discuss all this is Lauren Cochran, senior fashion writer at The Guardian and author of The Ten, Stories Behind the Fashion Classics, a new history of the 10 items we wear every day, from the white t-shirt to the hoodie to jeans to the Breton top. Hello, Lauren. How are you? And what classics are you wearing today? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. Uh, I'm wearing a Aries t-shirt and a pair of jeans. So that's two out of ten. It's not bad. That's a pretty good hit rate for a, a weekday morning. So uh, <laughs> presumably in, in the weekend, you just go full kit and it's ten classics head to toe. Looking at the long, the sort of long view here of where fashion is at the moment, in the 60s and 70s, they used to say that when the economy boomed, hemlines went up and then they went down again when business confidence collapsed. None of us has lived through a bust like this um, in our lifetimes. What is it doing to tastes in fashion at the moment? Is it changing what people want to wear and buy? There's endless column inches written about this. And I think, I mean, really, it's sort of too early to say the long term effects on, on what people want to buy. There's obvious ones that we can all make notes to. You mentioned in your introduction, the kind of rise of athleisure. I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. You can see that the foregrounding of comfort in fashion is obvious. So if you think about some of the collections, like the first Prada collection with Raph Simmons, for example, had a very much more of a focus on comfort and texture. On the flip side, there's a real desire to go back to dressing up. So you sort of think about lots of young designers like Maximilian and Mawalola, both of whom are uh, British designers, really sort of pushing almost like a clubbing aesthetic. That's in kind of Mark Jacobs's second line, which is called Heaven, which is very much that sort of 90s club kid thing, which is doing really well at the moment. So, you know, it sort of fits into two streams, I think. So with that split between low athleisure and then sort of high party clothes at the other, is that filtering down to high street designers as well already? Because it used to be that, you know, there was quite a long lag between what the catwalk was doing and then what you were seeing on the high street. Has that time period sort of condensed a lot now? That's condensed anyway, because fast fashion moves so much faster. I mean, it should almost be called, I don't know, like sprint fashion or something. I mean, it's just the way it's speeded up in the last 10 years is off the scale. And also, I would say lots of fast fashion companies, the ones that are really like doing well, aren't really paying that much attention to catwalk brands. I mean, they're paying a bit of attention, but probably they're paying more attention to some celebrities, influencers, and also just looking at what consumers are wearing. So if you think about like ASOS and Boohoo, they will do both of those things. So they'll have athleisure like trackies and sort of more glam takes on trackies. 
And then they'll have tiny party dresses that are sort of ready for Friday night. I guess we'll see what happens with that after July the 19th. It's interesting that of those big players, though, the ones you mentioned by name are all kind of purely online retailers. In terms of the actual physical high street, what commercial state is that in at the moment? Is Gap the last big player that you think we'll see leaving the high street or are other brands sort of circling the drain at the moment as well? Probably there'll be some more casualties. Gap is the most recent. But then you've also got shops that are doing, I mean, I, you know, I'm just basing this on sort of my experience, but that are doing really well. Like I, I actually went into, went to Oxford Street the other day and there was a queue outside that shop, Burschka, which um, is, I suppose, the sort of equivalent of the ASOS Boohoo misguided aesthetic, but actually with physical stores. And then you're also getting these brands that are doing what has the terrible name of Fidgetal, <laughs> um, which is as it sort of tries to say, uh, physical and digital all at once, like the Brown store, which has sort of interactive changing rooms. And, and that's obviously now owned by Farfetch. So it's this mixture of digital and physical experience. I mean, is there any sense, do you think, that at a governmental level, people actually understand how much this is kind of kicking the legs out from under an industry? Because there's a report by the Oxford Economics for the BFC has shown that the impact of COVID could be twice as hard on the fashion industry than on the economy as a whole. Um, and they were saying, you know, collective actions required to ensure recovery and positive growth of what is this vast, vast industry for the British economy? Is there any sort of sense formulating of what the industry actually needs in terms of practical support right now? I just think it needs some respect is basically what I think it needs. Mm. It's astounding how the government will pay so much attention to, you know, the fishing industry which is sort of like a tiny amount in terms of the amount that the fashion industry contributes to the economy. I think the government still see it as this sort of like flighty, you know, old fashioned frocks and haircuts. It's a massive misunderstanding of the amount of jobs it creates. It's not just name designers, it's tiny little boutique labels, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, I think that is it kind of needs to be taken seriously. It needs some respect for the achievements that the British fashion industry have made. Is there a sense, I mean, is there anyone actually in the government who is fully invested in the industry that, I don't know, the way that like someone like Johnny Mercer was going out to sort of bat for the armed forces and that was sort of his thing, or there's ministers who, you know, are very closely alive with sport. Is there anyone in the current government who seems to even have a sense of fashion or, you know, a sense of what the industry is? Are they championing it? I mean, I suppose the closest thing I can think of, obviously, she isn't batting for the fashion industry in any way, but Carrie Simmons wearing a rented dress for her wedding was that sort of like, I suppose, the last time that we've seen anyone sort of connected with politics, making a statement in terms of fashion and politics. Although recently it came out that wearing rented clothes is almost as bad for the environment as throwing them away. <laughs> how, how come? Is this because of the, like, the carbon cost in delivering them and the packaging and sending them back? Yeah, all of that, exactly. And the dry cleaning. <laughs> so another uh, another fi- fine idea out the window. Um, <laughs> I mean, in terms of, I mean, that obviously leads us to, there was a lot of talk last year about, you know, were we going to see the end of this sort of like wasteful fast fashion as recovery kicks in? Would there be this sort of reordering of uh, the, the business model there? But doesn't fashion depend to some extent on fast, repetitive consumption? Can it survive as an industry with a more sustainable model? Yeah, I mean, these are all of the questions that are being asked. And actually, I suppose, like, obviously, the pandemic has been awful and is awful. 
But I guess like, you know, if you want to think about positives that are coming out of it, it is that those questions are now more to the forefront of the industry thinking, whereas before they were kind of still a bit niche and everyone was like, yeah, 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 whatever. Not, I mean, not everyone. That's, that's definitely um, a flippant way of thinking about it. But it, it wasn't seen as part of how we move forward. But now it definitely is. There's so much to unpack there. I think it's incredibly complicated to actually make fashion sustainable. Because as you say, it's based on, it's all, it's all about novelty as an industry. It's a big ship and big ships take a long time to turn around. It's going to take a lot of thinking from people who are way more strategic than me as to how you do that in a way that still manages to maintain, I suppose, maintain the kind of excitement that needs to come as part of fashion. I definitely think more people are thinking about sustainability in lots of ways, like as in like, you know, I think a lot of people, I don't know, I certainly am thinking about whether I sort of need that t-shirt or those jeans or whatever, which I suppose I wouldn't have thought about so much before. Um, and I imagine, you know, if I'm thinking about that, then lots of other people are too. And in terms of sort of where we are in a kind of historical moment, your book that has recently been published tells the story of 10 classic fashion items that have endured throughout our fashion history, from the white T-shirt to the little black dress. It follows their creation and their evolution. Given that we're living through a major economic change, did you find in writing the book that there was a sort of a repeated pattern of that, that major economic changes tend to trigger shifts in fashion and sort of how we wear? Are those things often tied together? That's an interesting question. As you mentioned at the start, like the bit about the idea of what the, what they call the hemline index of people wearing shorter skirts in boom times and longer skirts in harder times. I think there's definitely ways in which economics play out in what we wear. So, like for example, the like jeans were very much seen as a poor person's item of clothing. Well, actually, interestingly, until the 30s, which obviously was a decade of depression. And that was partly because brands like Levi's and Wrangler were basically suffering because the poor workers that they had had as their customer base no longer had money to buy new clothes. So they all pivoted to making jeans a fashion item. And that's when jeans became, for example, like marketed to women. And there was like adverts for Levi's in Vogue. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there's different, different ways that the, the economics kind of play out. The book's full of surprises around, I mean, items that you think you know everything about. I mean, one of my favourites was that fact the stiletto started out on the feet of 15th century Iranian equestrians and eventually <laughs> made it through to be this key item of power dressing. Um, what did you discover in the research that surprised you the most? Oh, that's an interesting question. The one that I sort of found most sort of interesting in terms of, yeah, like different perceptions was black. I talk about the little black dress, but as part of that, I did quite a lot of research about black itself. And it's been interesting because it's always symbolised grief, which is still something that exists today. But uh, over time, wearing black has symbolised piety. It symbolised prosperity. It symbolised young working class women in um, in America. So they, like shop girls would wear little black dresses. And it was seen as dowdy and something that a fashionable, um, prosperous woman wouldn't want to wear. So I found that quite interesting because now it's just such a fashion classic, isn't it? I mean, it, you'd, you'd never really question the chicness of black. <laughs> but at one point, it wasn't chic at all. Probably the most recent item in the book is the hoodie. Mm-hmm. Um, were you surprised when you were doing the research about just how vilified that item of clothing was even relatively recently and 
was there a particular turning point where it went from shorthand for an ASBO to £500 in Dover Street Market? Oh, uh, the hoodie is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I don't think I was necessarily surprised because I'd sort of read a fair amount of that beforehand. But I think it was really interesting, stroke incredibly depressing, how an item of clothing can lead to people judging you in in negative ways. Like a lot of items in this book, the hoodie has existed on various tracks through its history. There was always an element that it was fashionable because it was part of streetwear. But I suppose the turning point was probably to do with the rise of brands like Supreme and Palace, because they made a hoodie, a kind of cult item when it had like a, a Supreme logo on the front, for example. Catwalk brand saw that and wanted a bit of that cool factor. And so it became a fashion item as well as a streetwear item. Are there things that we're wearing today that you think might obtain that kind of classic status in future? Will massive ugly trainers or huge technical hiking jackets have this sort of iconic status in the future? There are certain things that will keep evolving in the way that the 10 items do. I suppose something like an outdoors jacket, I think that has the potential to keep going and keep getting remade every sort of, you know, five years or so. The the kind of idea of what that particular type of fleece looks like will change. I think with trainers, it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because I think a lot of the trainers that are classics are already classics. So sort of Air Force Ones, we see those, they're very hackneyed, you know, we see them all the time. The influence of those trainers is everywhere. So, you know, I mean, you wouldn't have common projects, for example, without the Stan Smith. The trainers that we have now are still working on the models that have existed for a while, for sort of 20, 30 years. And as somebody who thinks about fashion all the time, and you've written about it for most of your career now, you write very seriously about it as a subject. And yet, you know, you write about it into broadsheet newspapers. And yet, any time when someone writes seriously about fashion, there's still this constant refrain from the comments that it's just clothes or it's just fashion. What's the easiest way to explain the importance of fashion to a naysayer, both in terms of what it means to us as people, but also, you know, what it means as an industry? Is there, how how do you sort of explain to people that it isn't just clothes? I think with the industry, you just have to say how much it kind of contributes to the economy. A lot of people don't realise that. Coming out with some good, good hard numbers always helps there. And in terms of like people who say it's just clothes, I always come back to, there's a, there's a description that Muchu Prada says about fashion, which I use in the introduction to my book, which is, she, she calls it an instant language. And I think that's exactly what it is. It's an instant language and we use language to express how we feel. But also the, the thing about fashion or the thing about what we wear is that it tells people how we feel, what we like, what we don't like, where we live. It tells people all sorts of things about us without us saying a word. And actually, it does that without us wanting to sometimes, you know, it's not always like, you know, obviously, if you wear a band t-shirt, you want people to know that you like that band. But if you wear like a pair of non-branded jeans, you're sort of saying that you're not interested in trends, you you kind of want to be more anonymous, but that's still a statement in itself. Um, And I think that for me is is what it comes back to. And I think that's what makes fashion so interesting. With you're saying that, I mean, obviously, clothes can reveal a lot about, you know, bigger subjects and the ideas of how we live and how we view ourselves. There was a lot of public soul searching by the fashion industry last year, particularly with regard to Black Lives Matter. British Vogue's September 2020 issue was dedicated to activism now, while you know everyone from style magazines to advertisers are now taking pains to appear more diverse. 
Is there a genuine desire to change, do you think? Or is it just window dressing and this is kind of a trend for the next year or two? I think it's really important that this stuff was raised. And I think as a white middle class woman working in fashion, it showed me a hell of a lot of stuff that I hadn't really thought about because I don't come across it personally on a day-to-day basis. I think there is a lot of window dressing, sadly. I think we see a lot of models of colour in adverts that we wouldn't see before. And that's great. Definitely think it's brilliant to have a diverse representation of people in images. I think that really, though, the real change is going to come from not just having, and I think this is a really key point, I think we need to have a diverse range of people in stakeholder positions, on boards, in companies, in magazines, at newspapers, etc, etc. But also, I just think that, like, it's not all about putting all of that on people of colour. I think we all need to, like, be mindful of our behaviour. I'm obviously a white person, but I feel like there's been a lot of pressure on people of colour to teach us those lessons. And that's not their job. That's not their responsibility. So I think it's down to all of us to make that change. And despite all these sort of travails we've discussed today, on a creative level, British fashion actually seems to be in a very healthy state at the moment. And there's a lot of designers and labels doing really interesting stuff. Um, Who are the British labels that are interesting you most at the moment? Oh, lovely question. There's loads of great designers at the moment. It's really exciting to see, actually. So I really love Maximilian. I mentioned him earlier. Charles Jeffrey, Grace Wells Bonner is, I mean, absolutely just peerless in terms of her creativity. Aries, the t-shirt that I've gotten today, I think that Sofia Prantera is doing great things in the kind of world of sort of more sort of, I guess you'd call it skatewear. There are bright, bright spots in smaller labels. So things like uh, House of Sunny, which is almost like, a, I guess, like an Instagram label, which is really fun. Bianca Saunders is interesting. She just won the Andem Prize. There's loads of kind of good new talent coming out. And among that kind of talent, is there anything that could be described as a kind of dominant aesthetic or a sort of unifying style or are things just completely atomized? This is going to sound a bit naff, but it's, it's kind of almost like a joy. In, there's a joy in those clothes or in, in that way that they're creating, I think. Charles Jeffrey always has these amazing shows that are like parties. And then you sort of think about something like people like Maximilian. Uh, oh, and Mawalola, who I didn't mention before. And those are very sort of like, sexy clothes like going out and having a great time and there's that sort of spirit which is something that I think we can all appreciate especially after the year that we've had. Very much so and finally with a very serious question about you know what clothes say about us and the message they convey we're now led by a prime minister who despite having access to money stylists and the finest tailoring that Savile Row can supply seems completely incapable of even wearing a suit that fits him what message do you think someone is trying to convey? And is there a precedent for people dressing aggressively badly to make a point? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the most recent precedent is a, a former president, isn't it? Yes. Um, yeah, Trump did exactly the same thing, right? Baggy trousers and a very, very long tie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I always think, I, I sort of have said this before, but I feel like Johnson and Trump, they're, they're performatively badly dressed. So it's about kind of what they're, I mean, again, this is about the sort of, they're using that language of fashion. It might not be through dressing well, but they're using it to convey a point. Um, and the kind of optics of dressing like that is, A, I have too much on my plate to think about what I wear in the morning. I mean, how like sort of vain and um, fickle or whatever. What they're doing there is trying to speak to 
people that they think that also are like that, that don't give a fig about fashion. So I think it's two things. I think it's kind of playing to that electoral base they, they want to appeal to and also the sort of like the semiotics of being far too busy to care what they look like. Although, you know, I mean, if you think about it, politicians have managed to look good while also sort of running countries. I mean, if you think about someone like Obama, for example, did that very well for eight years. If you were given the call by Downing Street, maybe Carrie Simmons gets on the phone and asks you to come in and gently advise Boris Johnson as to how he could look a bit more presentable, given his sort of shape, body size, style, what would you gently advise him to do? I think a haircut would help. Some sort of hairbrush would also be uh, useful. I think and also just just go and I mean, he must have a fair amount of money in the bank there. So maybe he could even go to sort of a a proper Savile Row suit maker. And also, you know, the optics of that would would uh, would help him sort of to show that he was supporting British business, which um, I'm sure he'd like to do. I'd also like him to invest in some new ties so he's not wearing the same tie at his wedding that he appeared to be wearing in a photo with the last woman he was having an affair with, which uh, oh, I thought God. seemed like a particularly, uh, particularly cheap shot. So anyway, Lauren Cochran, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. The 10 Stories Behind the Fashion Classics is out now in paperback from Welbeck, priced at £14.99. Listeners, thanks for joining us too. Remember, there's a new bunker every Monday to Thursday, plus a weekend edition, and you can support us by backing us on Patreon, the crowdfunding network. Search Patreon Bunker Podcasts to find out about early episodes, our classy merchandise, and ticket discounts for our debut live show, fully COVID secure with masks for all. The Bunker versus Oh God, What Now? is at the Leicester Square Theatre on Tuesday, August the 10th. Tickets available at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.